Hello and welcome to the Stockout. This is your show at FreightWaves for all things related to the consumer packaged goods, CPG industry. I hope everyone's having a good uh, Monday. I'm your host, Mike Bowdendistel. I'm the head of Intermodal Solutions here at FreightWaves. And this is a show where we set aside about 26 minutes to talk about what I think CPG companies will care about, which is some news that's happening that's not covered elsewhere on FreightWaves.com. It's also going to include uh, some of the freight data that we're seeing, things that CPG companies are going to want to know when they go into upcoming bids and upcoming negotiations uh, and uh, think about their uh, level of transportation service. What I'll talk about today is I'll talk about what's happening in the world of sugar, which I think is um, you know something that is, is really kind of a growth area, our low sugar alternatives for foods, uh, low sugar ingredients. There's a number of startups that are addressing that, which I thought was some of the more interesting content that came out about CPG industry in the last uh, week. So I'll, I'll walk through uh, those things and then I'll go through some freight waves uh, charts from the sonar product that uh, really hit on what um, CPG companies are going to want to know when uh, their freight contracts come up for renewal. So um, you know, with that, um, I'll talk about the first uh, topic here, which is, uh, you know, a number of startups are targeting a sugar uh, reduction um, and, and really going about, about that in, in a few different ways. So as a little bit of a backdrop, uh, this was an interesting stat from one of the companies they, they had on their site. Uh, 200 years ago, uh, con- uh, humans consumed about two pounds of sugar in a year. In 1970, it was 173 pounds of sugar, and it's now currently 152 pounds of sugar. So we're not going back to what we did uh, you know, 200 years ago, but I think if we could get um, it back and uh, to where it was in 1970, cut, cut 29 pounds of sugar out of our lifestyle, um, that would be a good thing, rightly or wrongly. Uh, sugar is being blamed for obesity and diabetes, uh, which are both on the up and and really, there's been a lot of different angles here, both government and from companies themselves. Um, as far as what the government is doing is the FDA has new rules that include what can be defined as healthy, which has to include some positive nutritional benefit to a particular food. And it also um, has limits on how much fat, salt, sugar can go into a food and still be considered healthy. So, um, you know, changing, you know, rules there sort of to reflect the, the more holistic nature of the way we think about, um, you know, healthy foods, no longer, you know, having just, uh, just looking at, at fat and, and things to avoid. Also um, in the UK, they've made a big push um, on the government side to reduce the amount of marketing of uh, sweet uh, products to children, uh, restrictions on when they can market those on television, you know, times when children might be viewing, not being able to have those at checkout counters where uh, kids might be uh, begging for those while the parent is, is uh, grabbing for their um, credit card, and uh, new labeling requirements in the UK, which you know may or may not be coming to the US. I have an example of this, which is a Shutterstock uh, image if we can put that up, which shows kind of a stoplight approach to the nutritional, um, you know, label, which, uh, you know, now, you know, the current nutritional labels go on the back of packaging and what uh, is already taking place in, in the UK and may uh, be required in the US here too, is this image that goes on the right on the front of, of packaging. So this is going to compete with the space that the marketing groups have for, Tony the Tiger and the like, uh, and, and so this, the the consumer goods uh, companies don't like this 
maybe because it takes away space from their messaging and maybe also because it highlights how unhealthy some of these popular uh, CPG you know, products are. You know, if I saw that label on the front of my uh, consumer packaged good, I already know it's more sugar than I want to consume. If it's 38% of my, my, my intake, um, that's going to blow my, my sugar budget for the rest of, of, of the day. So that may be coming to all the uh, consumer packaged goods uh, to you if, if you live in the, in the U.S. and in the U.K., you're probably already used to, 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 to seeing that. And um, the uh, private companies themselves have uh, started to you know, make a bigger push to have uh, sugar-free alternatives. And uh, this was a, a, a stat I found interesting from Allied Market Research that was in one of the, the, the CPG newsletters. It said the global sugar-free carbonated drinks market was $125 billion in 2020. It's expected to grow to $243 billion by 2030. So that's a compounded annual growth rate of 7.3% in the CPG industry, which these products don't typically grow very fast. They're kind of GDP plus normally, unless there's some product that there's some lifestyle um, that's causing people to, to change your behavior or maybe some fad or something like that. So the, the growth areas in CPG, all these healthy foods, uh, pet foods, also a growth area. Um, some of these subscription boxes are all, all, all as well, kind of a, an emerging uh, you know, trend, but, um, but certainly products where you can cut back on, on sugar. Part of that is Pepsi is overhauling its a zero Pepsi Zero Sugar product. Uh, they're not satisfied with their 1% share of overall soda compared to the most uh, similar product, which is the Coke Zero. It's the 4%. Uh, so they're going to try to re- revamp that. They say they have a product that is um, you know, ready to go that tastes a lot uh, better uh, based on their, the market testing they've done. So that's what um, you know. One of the, the biggest CPG companies are, are doing. I'm going to walk through also what three startup companies that you may not have heard of are doing in uh, the world of reducing sugar. So these are companies are pretty innovative. This was the uh, from an article that I got um, you know, Food Business News uh, published in the last you know few days. Thought it was the best CPG related article of the week, at least that I saw. And they walked through what three uh, startups are doing. So there's there's you know one company called Dumatuk. This is an Israeli company it was established in 2014. Produces uh, you know has, has a number of patents, has 24 patents, 40 pending. Produces a product called Incredo Sugar. So Incredo Sugar is made from real cane or or beet sugar. It's designed to improve the efficiency of sugar delivery to the sweet taste receptors and enhances the perception of sweetness in food and beverages. The goal is to reduce sugar by 30 to 50% without compromising taste or texture. So there's going to be less sugar. And I, you know, I have a hard time wrapping my head around some of the technology there. They do explain it on the website, but essentially uh, it, the taste is going to be the same, but it's going to sort of trick the brain into thinking that there's more sugar in a product than there, there really is. This was scaled up in partnership with Lantic Sugar, which is Canada's largest sugar refinery. And this is now um, you know, commercially available. So Dumatuk is one to um, you know, keep an, an eye on. This is interesting how many of these uh, sort of innovative food companies, you see this a lot in vertical farming that come from, from Israel, maybe because it's just surrounded by countries that they're not on good terms with, uh, to say the least, is it try to want to be more food, food sufficient, um, food self-sufficient. Uh, so that was a, a one, to, one to watch. Another one here is called the Supplant Company. The Supplant Company uh, creates fiber-rich sugars by using the specific fiber-rich parts of crops. Those include stems, stalks, husks, and cobs. 
the long chains of sugars in those fiber are broken down using um, enzymes from fungi. So that technology is maybe a little bit easier to, to, to wrap your head around, at least it is for me, than uh, you know, the other one. You know, some of these are long chains separating the shorter chains of sugars, leaving the long, short blend. The company calls sugars from fiber. They also have, pro- they have products available right on, on their website now that you could buy from one of some chocolate that uses this um, you know, lower sugar, high fiber rich alternative. And you could test for yourself how, how, those, um, you know, res- how those taste. The, the supplant company uh, is, is an interesting one as well. And then they also talk, um, business, uh, Food Business News talks about Banyumos. This is a company that has some sugars found in nature, you know, that says that some sugars found in nature are better than others. They um, use this sugar called Tagatose, which is yeah, a rare sugar, but it's nothing you know, new about it. What, what this company is bringing to the table that's new is they're finding a way to make it more cost effective. So this sugar, uh, this rare sugar um, alternative, Tagatose, 90% of Swedish sugar, um, you know, without any off flavors. And the idea is that they can get that, make that more cost effective, that that will actually uh, supplant sugar at a, at a more cost effect, effective, you know, nature. And, and um, what's interesting here is the sugar, is the, is the, the Hershey company and sugar giant uh, marketer, ASR groups, where they would market things like Domino Sugar, uh, partnered in 2018 to co-lead an equity investment in this company, Bon Umos. Um, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, it's a new one uh, for me. But so what, what these have in common is they're all ways to reduce, uh, you know, sugar sort of alternatives that, um, you know, is an alternative to consumers just giving up the types of food and snacks that they like. So it'll be interesting to see how this um, you know gains traction, but um, this is definitely a trend to watch in CPG is, is ways to reduce uh, sugar. And I would even go a, a step beyond that is, is another way that, um, you know, another big trend will be reducing salt in, in the coming years. So I'll try to dig more into those. Maybe I can get some of those uh, you know, sugar um, startups, sugar reduction startups on uh, the show. Uh, topic number two here, and this was one that um, something I picked up from you know, a company that we talk to uh, frequently at FreightWaves. You know, shippers are insisting upon better transportation service. And, um, you know, what was interesting is, you know, we've had some discussions recently with, you know, one of the major uh, 3PLs, you know, logistics company, um, you know, pretty much household name, I'm not going to name who it is. But what this company said is that uh, in order for uh, carriers to successfully bid on, you know, contractual business right now in uh, early 2023, that they, um, the shippers are insisting that they take spot business that these shippers are offering and demonstrate that they can provide good service in those spot lanes. And if they do that, you know, then they'll have the privilege of participating in the bidding process for some of those large contracts and basically saying, you know, don't bother to um, you know, to bid on these uh, on these these free contracts if. Uh, you're not going to you know, participate uh, in that. So I thought that um, uh, line was was very interesting. I have a chart to that effect, which compares uh, van contract rates with spot rates. So, so van contract rates, excluding fuel, well, so line hole only in uh, the white line. And then in the orange line, uh, which is at $2.04 currently, the con- uh, contract rates, national average $2.60, those spot rates are adjusted to remove fuel surcharge. So we're comparing these on a like-for-like basis, one without fuel surcharge, uh, the spot rate's adjusted to exclude fuel surcharge using a $1.20 per 
per, not, per mile is, a, is sort of a baseline of, of what fuel surcharges are typically based off of. So there's still this large spread, you know, there would be, let's call it 56 uh, cents, uh, 260 minus 204. That's kind of the, the spread right now. And so carriers are trying to keep their um, trucks in the contracting market, avoid having them in the spot market. Spot market is not paying very much. Ship, uh, shippers are saying, well, you know, haul the spot freight if you want to participate in, in, the, in, in the contractual market. That might be part of why those spot rates are still that far below uh, the contracts. Would expect some of those contracts to gravitate lower. And I think really um, that behavior is a function of the shippers having the negotiating power in the marketplace. They wouldn't be doing that if the shoe was on the other foot and also a function of the fact that shippers have seen um, you know, really bad service. I mean, what stands out to me recently was the comment that General Mills made in, um, in, in sort of the food business you know, media where they said that they've never really had this degree of uh, supply chain challenges. And part of those challenges was not knowing when the truck was going to show up on time, not having the right ingredients, all of those things. You think about what Kraft Heinz said on one of its analyst calls where it said, well, at any given day, I, we don't have either some ingredient or some piece of packaging material. There's never a day where we just have all the materials we need. So uh, the, the, the shippers are using this um, sort of market, marketing clout right now in the marketplace as an opportunity to say, you know, let's not just get lower rates. Let's get lower rates and better, better service. Let's make the carriers earn it. So that's kind of uh, you know, what I'm hearing in the marketplace, um, which goes nicely into this next topic and next chart, which is the truckload contract rates are declining. Have uh, an annual uh, chart to, to that effect, shows van contracts for the last few years, uh, if we can pull that up. Um, and it shows that year-to-date you know, drive-in contract rates are uh, about $2.64 before fuel, and that's below the $2.73 that it was at this time last year, so call it a decline of Three dollar, three point six percent, and so they're, they started have started the year off lower. If we can get that um, that van contract uh, chart uh, up, that would be great. But essentially, um, you know, the, the previous two years, from twenty 2020 twenty into twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two, the van contract rates took up uh, you know double digit rate increases uh, from from those years. So there's been two consecutive years of double digit rate increases. We've seen that really across uh, modes certainly in drive and certainly in intermodal. Uh, but, you know, the data that we have so far in 2023, when you exclude fuel, you know, fuel is higher than it was, um, you know, a year ago. So that, that's still you know, on an all-in basis, um, you know, conflates what the, the, the shippers are actually paying. But you sort of exclude fuel surcharges. We are seeing those um, contract rates lower year over year. That decline of 3.6% largely reflects what was already in place uh, and, and some that uh, started to change, um, you know, contract pricing levels in late last year, but would expect that, um, you know, decline to accelerate, particularly in the first half of, you know, this year where they face a relatively, um, you know, easy comp uh, relative to an, an elevated level of, of van contract rates in the first half of last year. Those did start to come in in the second half of, of last year. So that's good news for um, shippers. And I think they'll, uh, you know, in a, in a position to negotiate pretty hard on uh, contracts as those come up for, um, you know, renewal. Uh, topic number four is our tender data in uh, FreightWave Sonar shows looseness in the largest uh, freight markets. So this was 
uh, from something that you know we look at you know every single day we look at the, the tender uh, data you know there it is on, on the chart so what I'm, what I'm put on this chart is the outbound tender rejection index uh, for four of the largest uh, outbound trucking markets in the United States this is going to include van reefer even there's even some intermodal in there even though intermodal doesn't get rejected all that often and just put it for for LA in, in white Atlanta in uh, green uh, Harrisburg, uh, Pennsylvania in blue and Chicago in, in orange. And what you see here, if you're listening to the audio and you can't see it is go back about a year and those ranged anywhere from about 10 or 12% all the way up to almost 25% in the case of Harrisburg, which just tend to be, you know, a little bit tighter as, as far as the percentage of, uh, loads that carriers were rejecting. Now, if you're a CPG company and you're listening to this, which is really the, the in, intended uh, you know, audience, although I'm happy to have everyone, you think of this as a tender acceptance rate, whereas as last year, 90% of my tenders were being ac- accepted out of LA, only maybe um, 75, 80% were being accepted out of um, you know, Harrisburg. You know, now 95% plus of your tenders should be accepted. And one of the things that we wrote up on Sunday, uh, you know, Donnie Gilbert gave a really good example of, you know, what, why you should care about this if you're a shipper and if your tender rejection rates are in the 10% range, only 90% or so are, of your loads are, are getting accepted, you know, check to see if, if, these, uh, if they're in these lanes, if they're in lanes that, um, that's not consistent with what's happening in the field, and then start to look for other uh, you know, carriers because the other carriers, you know, should be accepting your, your loads here. There's, there's, there's plenty of um, you know, capacity out there in a relative place, at least relative to the current you know, contract markets um, you know, in, the, in the field. And that's also why we're expecting to see um, you know, those contract rates that I talked about earlier, how those are down year to date, expect further downward pressure when you think of uh, some of the, the tender rejection rates of 2 to 4% in some of these big markets. That is, uh, you know, what we consider consistent with a deflationary uh, level uh, for uh, contract rates. So you think of sort of seven to ten percent, maybe, is kind of market kind of being in equilibrium, where contract rates would be flat as they roll over, but um, in the single digits, um, particularly low single digits, would expect those to to, to gravitate uh, lower. So the message is to be aggressive. If you're a, a, a shipper, um, you know, see, recognizing that um, the you know, not not much freight is being rejected, and that other contract rates are being negotiated lower uh, so far in 2023. Uh, topic number five is network balance is improving in rail intermodal. I know a lot of CPG companies use rail intermodal. A lot, you know, will go back and forth between intermodal and a truckload, depending on how time sensitive uh, their uh, shipments are. And this chart, I break down uh, inter- rail intermodal. So just looking at domestic containers, so 53 foot containers that are loaded with freight. I'm limiting it to, to that and just limiting it to some of the densest lanes in the United States. And the conclusion here is that the lanes that are down the most are some of these that are outbound um, in some of the densest lanes and, and, and some of the ones that are outbound from the big port city. So LA to Chicago, down 14%. LA to Dallas, down 19%. LA to Atlanta, also down 19%. New York to Chicago, down uh, 18%. Um, Chicago, Chicago back to New York, down, down, down 15%. So those lanes, volumes are a lot lower. You know, hopefully that means that shippers are seeing better service uh, you know, in the field. And then some of the others where uh, intermodal volume is actually up year over year would be some of these, what I would call kind of purely domestic 
intermodal moves, which would be something like Chicago into Harrisburg, Atlanta to Chicago, although I guess some of that could have been transloaded uh, freight um, that came in through Savannah. But, um, you know, for the most part, the, the shippers that use intermodal for purely domestic shipments, which includes a lot of CPGs that you know, manufacture a lot of these big um, consumer products in, in great volumes at one centralized location and move those to other distant consumption centers. Intermodal is a good option for them if they're not time sensitive, if there's enough in inventory. They should see uh, you know, potentially better service. Uh, and uh, you know, part of that is that the, the network is in you know, better balance. So it's not so much... Uh, repositioning containers back to the port, you know, cities, and so that's is probably a positive for most uh, CPG shippers. Uh, maybe with the exception of those that can really take advantage of the backhauls from, like, say, Dallas to LA or Chicago to LA, where the intermodal companies um, generally do want to get a lot of those containers back in order to transload international um, intermodal um, shipments into domestic intermodal those of uh, you know 40 foot containers and the 53 foot container so so by and large you know good uh, news for uh, shippers not seeing a lot of tender rejections on the intermodal side uh, just looked at that um, you know earlier in the day and those are still in kind of the single digit range and I sort of think of that as intermodal a lot of it's on auto accept and those tenders really shouldn't be uh, rejected um, much if they are uh, like we've seen in the past that generally is a red flag and means that um, you know, potentially the shippers are not getting good service. So I'll move on to uh, if those that are interested in a rail uh, should listen to the, um, you know, PSR podcast, which takes place on Thursday at three Eastern. And uh, this is the one we launched uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I do this with my colleague, Joanna Marsh. Joanna does the writing on freightwaves.com pertaining to uh, the um, railroad industry. She's done a lot lately on, uh, service issues, which are really kind of the topic of the hour in uh, Washington, D.C., which is where uh, she's uh, based out of, and uh, a lot of you know, regulations there. So, so that's something we'll, hit, we'll, we'll talk about. There's also a lot to talk about in terms of the potential of, of one-man uh, crews. Currently, um, the, the you know, two-man crew is mandated um, you know, not by anything at the federal level, but, but mandated by the uh, union um, you know, rules. You know, that could change if, as those, um, you know, negotiations uh, take place, but I'm not expecting it to. I, you know, I think the likelihood is that the Federal Railroad Administration, the FRA, is going to try to pre- preserve railroad safety, probably likely to make you know, two-man crews mandatory, despite the fact that positive train control, which is the high-tech method to stop a train in the event of human error, has been rolled out and a multi-billion dollar unfunded mandate in all sections that would, um, where a freight railroad would interface with either passenger rail or carry hazmats, because you really think of uh, positive train control as being kind of a last line of defense when all other things fail, the positive train control will kick in. And if it doesn't, uh, you know, you would like like it to um, be avoided if, if at all possible. Another topic is um, the short line should probably be excluded from that um, you know, uh, two-man crew uh, you know, mandate. Uh, they're really at a completely different business. Those trains don't run as, as, as far, those are, or don't run as fast or as far, and those are really sort of focused on uh, customer uh, you know, service uh, you know, levels. 
Um, so with that, that's a little bit of a preview of what we're talking about on, on, on PSR, but lots to go over in terms of rail, uh, you know, service, um, you know, all the things like foster farms, which that, you know, ties directly into CPG. That's a, both a CPG company and a big rail shipper that had trouble getting animal feed to its farms, had to have a mandate um, from, from Union Pacific. So, um, you know, please join me for that um, on Thursday. And then uh, next week on the Stockout, have a special guest. It's going to be Ben Ritchie from uh, Black Rifle Coffee Company. That's a, a great looking uh, logo there, um, looking out down the reticle of a scope. Um, so they're going to be talking about uh, challenges that the CPG companies are facing in terms of getting, uh, you know, the, all those, you know, service levels I talked about, certainly that's always a, a hot topic, sort of how they're managing their carriers currently. You know, Black Rifle, they're a fast growing company that is rolling out a lot of new products, like a lot of new ready to, to drink products that you might find at um, convenience store, gas station, um, in the refrigerated section, et cetera. They'll talk about how to plan for uh, securing a capacity uh, when you have a product that's really fast growing and, and, and maybe there's an uncertainty as to how uh, much traction that product is going to take in the field. So uh, please join me for that next week, um, discussion with uh, Black Rifle uh, Coffee Company. And I uh, hope to, to see you then. And until then, uh, feel free to sign up for my uh, stockout newsletter. Go to www.freightwaves.com forward slash the stockout and uh, join me for that. And with that, hope everyone has a great uh, Monday.